You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 181 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode I am joined by Anne Baring. She has worked as a Jungian analyst for 15 years and she teaches in the topics of psychology, mythology, fairy tales and alchemy. Let's go. So uh, thanks for being on the podcast. That's okay. That's great pleasure. Could you inform all the listeners briefly uh, just about uh, your work and and who you are, etc.? Yes, I'm a very old lady, aged 86 now, and I've been writing for about 30 years. I've written two major books, one with a friend called The Myth of the Goddess, and the other one, my most recent book, which is called The Dream of the Cosmos, which is a study of how we've got to where we are now, what happened in the last 4,000 years and before that, and what we need to do now in order to change our consciousness and help our suffering world. Um, I'm a Jungian analyst as well as a historian, and I've given many, many talks and seminars which can be found on my website, which is www.annbearing.com under the playlist. And as well as lots of talks and things on the website as a whole. So that's really my my um, situation in life now. I'm finishing off my work, preparing to depart into the next world, um, which I know is there. And um, I've just put a few videos up on YouTube, which you can find if you're interested in, in knowing uh, what I'm speaking about now. So I think that's enough for me, really. Alex, what would you like to ask me? Well, since you mentioned it, uh, preparing to leave for the next world, I was wondering, um, how does it feel to be closer to it than may- maybe many people who listen to this is half your age and they they don't have those thoughts anywhere near their present moments because it's so far away, people tend to not think about it. Uh, but you clearly have. And and also, do you have people close to you of the same age who have a completely different outlook because it sounded more positive coming from you? Well, I have I have a husband who's 87 and we're living a very happy life together in, in the country in England near Winchester. And I don't think he has all the same ideas as I have, but at least we can talk about them. He doesn't object in any way, which has made a very nice relationship for 50 how many years? About 57 years now, I think. So we've been married a long, long time. But as you get nearer to the time to pass into the next world, you you think, have I done what I've meant to do on this planet? Have I completed my work? Have I done the best I possibly can for the planet and for other people? So those are the sort of questions one asks oneself as one gets to this age. And also one puts one's affairs in order, one finds a place to send one's, give one's books away to, all that sort of thing, preparation. It's like going on a long journey and you make preparations for it. But um, I'm not in the least bit frightened because I know we go to other dimensions of the universe 
and I know I shall see my um, parents and close friends and also all the people who have been helping me with my work, they're all there too, doing their work over the other side. So part of my work is helping, helping people to understand that there is no death, there's the death of the physical body, but not the death of consciousness. And with that consciousness, or our soul consciousness, we go on to other dimensions of reality, where we meet up with um, friends and family that uh, we've been with in this world. So I think that could be great, a great comfort to people if they knew about that, because we've been taught, well, we haven't been taught, we haven't been taught anything for three or four thousand years, really. Um, we've taught in the Christian tradition that we wait for the day of judgment and then we're raised in our physical body. But Christianity doesn't teach anything about the survival of the soul and where we go, although it's been known in shamanic cultures for thousands and thousands of years. So that's one point that I wanted to get across. The other point is that we've worshipped God in different traditions for thousands of years without realizing that we are part of the whole that God is, so to speak. Although the consciousness of God is way, way beyond our consciousness, nevertheless, we are part of the created order, um, which, if you like, um, is part of the beingness of God. It's difficult to explain. You'll have to read my book, The Dream of the Cosmos, in order to understand, because it's a huge change in our way of thinking Instead of being helpless beings stuck on this planet for we don't know what reason, we are slowly becoming aware of why we're here on the planet, where we've come from, which is from the stars, and what we're, being, what we're meant to be doing here, uh, which gives us a sense of purpose and an agenda to accomplish. So we're not just only thinking of our jobs or bringing up our families. We're looking deeper into trying to understand what might be the particular role that we're meant to play in this particular life, because we have many lives, uh, thousands of lives probably, but this life we need to ask what am I meant to be doing here and now in order to serve the planet and help other people and bring up my own family and find the work that really gives me joy, what really gives me absolutely fantastic joy in doing that's what we need to find, which means we have to connect with our heart, because the heart knows when something is not right, when, it, when one is unhappy or depressed, it knows something is wrong. And depression is one of the major symptoms of our time, because so many people are lost, they don't know they have a soul, they don't know what they're doing here, and they're depressed because they haven't got the right partner, or because they think they haven't got the right circumstances in their life. There is terrible suffering in the world, which we can see all around us, particularly with the refugee situation and the dreadful war in the Middle East. This has created um, unbearable, un unimaginable suffering for millions of people. So we're in the midst of all this suffering, but what can we do to help? And my work is all about how we can raise our consciousness so that we understand we're part of the reality that is all around us. We're part of nature, we're not separate from nature. And we need to understand the wrong that we've inflicted on the planet in trying to be more powerful or greater or whatever each country wants to be. We've inflicted terrible suffering on the planet, which is a living being, if you like. It's not unconscious dead matter. It's a living being. So I think I've talked enough, Alex. Would you like to ask me anything else? Yes, uh, 
a few years ago, I was in the mental state that I really had no fear of death or anything like that. I, I, I look forward to it whenever it would happen. But I, recently I, I had a child and uh, ever since then I don't want to die in the sense that uh, it would be a great loss, even though you could say you meet in the next world and all that. But um, I believe that. But, you know, I, I always, I, you know, I believe it when I see it in, in a way. But uh, it has brought me a bit of like anti-death thoughts <laughs> well it's, it's absolutely natural if you have a small child you you want to live in order to care for that child and you want to see it grow up you certainly don't want to die nor should you be dying at that stage of your life or nor should the child die those are the two major concerns uh, that one has once one has a child is staying alive first of all and also keeping the child alive and giving it the best life possible to help it to grow up so it's absolutely natural that you're not thinking of death at the moment no, I mean like uh, even like when I'm very old, I wouldn't want to die because this is the it's the only real like it's not a possession, but you know like it's the only thing I don't want to lose. You know what I mean? Well, I think I would agree with you. I don't want to die either because I don't feel that I'm ready yet. I have a few more years in me, and I want to enjoy those years and do more more of my work if possible. So that's perfectly natural. One shouldn't be anticipating death all the time and thinking about it. But one should be aware, nevertheless, um, of the fact that death is not the end. That's really what I'm saying. Death is not the end. You talked a bit about it and uh, about uh, everything being a part of God. And isn't that the major difference between what you call spiritualism and mainstream religion? Because both, I know, Islam and Christianity and and the Catholics, they're very strict on the position that God is not part of the creation, you know. Well, that's the huge mistake that's been made. It was made long ago, beginning, I think, with Plato, but it was taken on by Christianity and by the other religions, and also Judaism hasn't got that um, belief. But what happened was that matter or nature got split away from spirit. So we've never considered that nature is sacred and part of God. We've always considered it as just the material world, so to speak. And in the Bible, as you probably know, um, man was given dominion over the world, over, over the animals. And that was a, a huge misunderstanding, probably a mistranslation anyway, of, of the words. But from that came the idea that we were the dominant species on the planet and we had control of what happened on the planet. And this has been the major, major mistake that we've made as a human species, which the shamanic cultures have not made. They have kept alive the realization that uh, the earth is our mother, so to speak, and that we are part of all the life that is around us, all the, the life of the trees and the rocks and the sea and the waters and the birds and all the animals. We're not separate as we think we are. We're part of that life that includes all of those elements. And that is a divine life, in my view. It's a sacred life. It's not something that uh, we can do what we want with, which we have done. We've inflicted terrible harm on the planet with our um, desire, first of all, with our numbers, which are far too many, and secondly, with our desire to have the um, all the advantages that we think we're entitled to without thinking what we're doing. 
for instance, for example, um, it's been discovered now that the oceans are full of plastic, which have come from our unthinking, discarding of all the plastic that wraps our food and that does any number of wrapping of things that we buy all the time. So that was a, a kind of unconsciousness, but we are fortunately becoming aware of the need to stop dumping plastic into the oceans because the fish and the whales and, and, and uh, all the creatures in the sea are choking on them and it's killing them. So we're beginning, that's a beginning of consciousness, a change of consciousness, that we're responsible for what we're doing to the earth and we have to change our habits. So that's all part of my work really, as well as the work of a great many people on the planet now. Uh, they're changing their way, they, they regard everything and realizing that they're responsible for caring for animals and for the planet in a way that they hadn't been before. And this was never part of religions, never, that they should care for nature. A lot more people, I think, uh, these days are conscious of all the things you've just said. But still, it sometimes feels depressing because it's still a huge minority. And the majority is so destructive that it's almost it always feels futile to even you know put up an effort yes but when you compare because my life has been a long life and i can look back even 10 or 20 years when there was not this realization and this consciousness in the world there were perhaps just a handful of people a tiny handful of people like um a man called schumacher for instance who was looking ahead and could see what was happening or the man who wrote um, like james lovelock for instance he began to think of the planet as Gaia, as something that was alive. Now, that was a huge change. And since then, more and more people have begun to um, realize that we have to change our ways. And I would say now there are probably um, half a billion people who, who are awake, so to speak. And the other people, as you say, are not aware of this. But the thing is changing so rapidly. Everything is changing so rapidly that I think that there will be many, many big changes in the decades to come, surprising changes, very quick changes, that we had no idea were coming. So I have great hope for the future of the planet and for our future um, because of that, because I think that there'll be more and more people who have to wake up through force of circumstances. The problem is, as you know, the problem is governments who are working at a, um, a very archaic level of survival instincts. And the problem is how to change the pattern um, of the way governments go about their relationships with other nations into, instead of being all fighting their corner, so to speak, which is a survival instinct, they absolutely have to become aware that uh, they're part of one whole and they're not working against each other for more power but they should be working together for the benefit of the planet and that is gradually creeping in gradually gradually keeping in so i think that although it can be depressing at moments to see what's going on in the world nevertheless i do see huge changes that have happened in my lifetime and that are still happening in time to come could you name an example from when you were a teenager that was completely a something like that was completely controversial or unacceptable or people considered stupid, but today is logical and accepted and 
I think the biggest change came in the 80s with the nuclear weapons threat, with the tension between uh, the Soviet Union and America and the uh, Cold War. That began to make wake people up. That really did, because people began to be divided into those who were against weapons, like the campaign for nuclear disarmament, which has been going on now since the 80s or even earlier, and the people who still regarded nuclear weapons as necessary. And the fact that there have been 122 nations that have signed a pact um, against having weapons is a big sign of change. That was last year, last July. That's a huge change that so many countries could come together to decide that they will never develop nuclear weapons and that they will work to stop the nine nuclear powers from having nuclear weapons. That's one of the major things I'm working on at the moment, writing and speaking about that. Because the pattern of having nuclear weapons or any weapons of mass destruction belongs to the old paradigm where each country was against each other and had to defend each other against all the others, so to speak. And we have to move out of that mindset. How to do it, I don't know, but gradually through nations coming together and discussing all this thing and the UN discussing it, um, it is beginning to shift people's consciousness so that they realize that actually having these weapons is morally obnoxious. It's not acceptable. It really makes us inhuman to even think about using them or having them and using them against other people. And the, if we did use them, if anyone did use them, the results would be absolutely catastrophic because we'd have something called a nuclear winter when a great deal of the life of the earth would die, apart from many millions of people would die, or billions of people, in fact. So people um, like myself and many others are thinking um, about these things and working to bring other people to realize that we simply cannot go on along that path because it will lead us to our own destruction as well as planetary destruction. So that's one big change. When I look back at the 80s when this was all beginning to my teenage years when all I was thinking about was boys and, and how to meet boys, that was literally my entire life at that time. And I think teenagers now are much more aware that um, things um, are in needing their input or their change. I mean, look at the situation in America, for instance, with the massacre of the students in Florida. And look what has come out of that with a, a great movement of students all over America to put an end to that dreadful gun law. So that is an example of how things can change, whereas maybe 20, 30 years ago, that wouldn't have been possible, even if children had been massacred. So I think that one can see the signs of a growing consciousness in different elements of humanity saying, enough is enough, we will not stand for this anymore, we will not have our children sacrificed by guns, and we will not have the world threatened by nuclear weapons. It's that kind of attitude which I think is strengthening and growing now, far, far more than anything that I can remember in the past. Things are clearer. That's what's happening. Things are clearer. And because they're clearer, people know what to do and um, gather, coming together. There's an organization called AVAZ, A-V-A-A-Z, which has just managed to defeat the, um, in, the, in the European Union to defeat the great corporations that were destroying the bees through using a particular kind of insecticide. And because they had, I don't know how many, they have 42 million 
followers, Abbas does, and 42 million has quite some clout, and they had enough clout in the European Union last week to put an end to these um, terrible pesticides that were being used by Bayer, I think, and Malta Monsanto. So that is a change that people can contribute to. They can join something like Avaz and make their voice heard in the face of government opposition very often. So I have great hope in that sort of an organization, which is new. There was nothing like that 10 years ago, 15 years ago. It's new and it's powerful and it's effective. It's really working. So I see that as very hopeful. You mentioned that uh, one of the books you'd written uh, looked at the last 4,000 years of our, our world. And uh, don't you think that if you imagine yourself 4,000 years ago living in some city in those days and today, I, I don't imagine it apart from some technological differences, but it, it's not that different I don't think. No, I think you're right. I, th I think what happened was when people began to move to cities in about 2000 BC, particularly in um, Babylon and, and that in the Middle East, um, they began to act just like we're acting now. They began to fight other cities. There were people, um, really armies began to be formed and then there were um, invasions of other territory and slaughter of the people in the territory. So we're not that much different. And I should think daily life was very much the same. People uh, gathered, um, grew the food for the, in the crops, and then the crops were brought to the city and distributed among the people for food. And so much the same we do now. We had, didn't have supermarkets then, but the same idea of growing food and distributing it to the people in the cities was the same, basically. And instead of um, whatever it was, swords that they had then, we've now got our nuclear weapons. <laughs> Basically, people wanted to live in peace in all these places. They didn't want to have armies going across their, their ground and destroying all their crops. They didn't want to send their sons to war um, and see them not come back. You know, there was a terrible suffering that went on for thousands of years because of these wars territorial wars and the building of great empires. And America is the latest example of a great empire that wanted to rule the world, but it's finding that it can't rule the world, and this is very necessary for it to learn. It was probably, I mean, you, you can look at it two ways, but uh, when, we, when the whole of humanity lived in that shamanic way and were tribes and were nomads, uh, it was probably a very nice, nice world, harsh at some level, but still a peaceful world. Uh, so maybe we shouldn't have evolved into um, a so-called civilized world or uncivilized world. But uh, there's also the maybe you ha we had to do that to reach something else also in the future that we don't know about. What do you think? You, you yes, I yes, I can understand what you're saying. We didn't have to move to the cities, but we, we did because there were then very many people. Once we had agriculture, we had many more people. And then that led naturally to cities um, organizing the people into groups, so to speak. And then there were different tribal groups and different um, countries eventually, different states. So it all just happened without our being aware what was happening. We haven't really had a chance to look back at everything until now. We, we've got enough knowledge now 
of what life was like in the Paleolithic and the Neolithic eras and the Bronze Age. And we can see the big shift in the Bronze Age when there was the emphasis on, on, on war and conflict, which didn't exist nearly to the extent that it did later in the Neolithic, for instance, which was what I've written about in my book, The Dream of the Cosmos. There was a whole period which was ruled by um, the Great Mother, the worship of the Great Mother instead of the Great Father. And this was far more peaceful because it was a different concept of life. That was when life was sacred and when there was no creator who was beyond creation because the Great Mother brought forth all of creation out of her womb. So there was no separation. It's just like a mother bringing forth a child. The child is not separate from the mother. And so nature was never considered to be separate from the divine ground, if you like, or the Great Mother or the Divine Mother. And then around 2000 BC, there came this huge change, came change in the archetypal image from the Great Mother to the Great Father. And with that came the whole emphasis on war and struggle between rival um, peoples, really, that, that started the whole thing off. So we lost the feminine principle. That's one of the main themes of my book is why we lost the feminine principle and what have been the effects of losing the feminine principle because our culture now is entirely governed by the masculine principle. It's, it's governed by the concept of progress and growth and particularly technological growth and there's absolutely no relationship with the planet or with the earth or with nature. There's no sense that that should be our guide as it is still in the shamanic cultures. Uh, we've become split off really from nature and we think we can do with anything we want with our technology. I was just reading in today's paper that the firm called Uber, you know, the taxi firm, is thinking of having flying taxis <laughs> going through the air and transporting people from one place to another. But can you imagine the, the total chaos and the horrible noise and just the general um, extension of all the traffic on the ground. It just doesn't make sense. But that is a typical example of the male psyche being absolutely fascinated by technology and by the new stage of technology. So we've got cars on the ground, let's put them in the air. That is an indication of the madness, really, which I think is, is growing all the time in our world. And it's an example of the um, masculine archetype completely out of touch with the feminine, which would be saying, is this a good idea? Do we really want it? Do we want more noise, more pollution, etc., etc.? So that's what I just noticed today, which was I really said to my husband, what on earth are they thinking about? There's uh, something about the uh, f uh, feminist movement these days that is almost enwrapped in the male archetype in a way where it's almost um, my impression is that I mean all feminists or feminist movements are different but there's a huge one that is almost portraying it as being negative to be a woman or being female or feminine instead of focusing on just the basic, you know, equal rights. Have you noticed this? Yes, I have noticed it. And I think you're absolutely right. I think it's what's happened is that women have had the male model in their education and in the society generally. 
And in order to have power and be equal with men, they have taken on the characteristics of the male, which is to achieve and to, you know, to, to struggle for power. At least that's the way it has been. But they've gone too far and they've completely lost any awareness of what the feminine is all about in, this, in the desire to have equality of wages and things with men, which is perfectly legitimate. But in the process, they've rather thrown the men out with the bathwater, so to speak, so that men are feeling that they are, are without value in the eyes of women, which is totally wrong and nonsense. But they've gone too far. And they're, not, they're, they're really in the power of the masculine archetype and they've lost touch with the feminine, which is not to insult men through being the masculine archetype, but saying that the whole thing is out of balance. And it comes from 2,000 years of women being oppressed and um, pushed down, if you like, not given any power at all, not given any position in society, and not given any education or access to education or the voting, which we only had 100 years ago. So one can understand why women have been so angry and so um, anxious to be on an equal level with men. But... In doing so in the last 20 years or so, or even more, 50 years, they've lost the connection with their age-old understanding or experience, really, of caring for life. Um, they've gone after, after the thing of power instead of really staying with the thing of connection and relationship. And so men feel very threatened, quite rightly, by having another man around rather than a woman. <laughs> um, and the transgender situation has muddled everything up even more. So it, it's a very, I think it's all come about this emphasis on um, change. It's come about because we need a change of consciousness. But because there's no understanding of what this change of consciousness involves, people have taken it onto the literal level of we must fight for our rights and we must fight for our gender equality and we must fight for this or that or the other thing. Quite forgetting of the fact that they really haven't got any rights whatsoever in relation to the planet. We've got stuck in thinking that what our human species wants is what it has to have. It's, it's kind of social, uh, totally egotistic position which has thrown everything out of balance and men as well as women are very confused at the moment. And I can understand why. I can understand the Me Too movement, uh, the women being uh, needing to say that they're fed up with being exploited and used by the people in powerful positions in Hollywood or wherever in the movies, movie profession. I can understand that, but there's the need for balance always so one has to always temper whatever one is saying or doing, saying, well, it's only some men who have behaved like this. It's not all men. Therefore, we're not enemies. Men are not our enemies. Um, we really need to enlist the help of men in making this situation better, improving it for both genders so that we don't get stuck in one position and, and get polarized into disliking or hating or despising the other gender. I'm pretty sure, certain that women would never have been able to vote if 
there was wasn't any men in those days that agreed. <laughs> you know, if all men were against it, they would probably not ever got the chance. Well, that's that's true. But they did put up a tremendous fight. I mean, some were killed and some were went to prison. Some were force fed. There was dreadful, dreadful um, treatment of women in their effort to get the vote. But there were some men. But the church was dead against it, and the um, political life at that time was dead against it. They were horrified. But the fact that women had fought in the, not fought, but assisted in the First World War changed everything because women had to take the place of men in the factories. When the men went off to fight, there was nobody left to run the place. So women really ran the country um, while the men were at war. And when the men came back from war, they found that women were changed because women had discovered that they were able to do all sorts of things that nobody thought they could do. So that brought that was the thing that brought about the change. It was the fact that women had worked during the war in all these very um, different professions, which they'd never worked in before. And they didn't want to go back to just sitting at home and doing the things that they had been doing before. So that that changed everything. And that many men did support that. And eventually the, the vote was passed. But um, with a big struggle, even so, in lots of different countries. I think America was ahead of England in that, and Switzerland was very far behind. Well, how I found out about you was your uh, talks on alchemy. Could you talk a bit about what that means for you? Yes, I was just look. I was just listening to one of my own talks before you telephoned, and um, alchemy is really the process of transformation that humanity has been going through for thousands and thousands of years. And at the moment, it's a particularly acute phase of alchemy because we have to transform our consciousness if we're to su survive on this planet. Otherwise, we're going to destroy ourselves. So the stages of alchemy are, first of all, the negredo, which is the, the, the blackness or the darkness or the incomprehension of suffering that one has gone through or is going through. And then the next stage of alchemy is called the albedo, which is the whitening phase, when one begins to clarify one's understanding. One begins to say to oneself, I don't want to go on in the way I've been living. I want to be have a different way of living um, during my life. It's, it's, it's the change of consciousness, the, the sort of... Um, illuminating awareness coming into one's consciousness is being aware of one's soul as well. It's um, it's an enormous change, the albedo, and I think that's what's happening now in a collective sense, in the sense that you have said that many people are waking up now. That is really the albedo um, phase of alchemy. And then the next phase is uh, called the citronitas, which I haven't talked very much about in my, my lectures, but it's the stage, I think, of deep regret and bitterness that one made such stupid things, that one has acted so stupidly in the past, and a longing to be different and act differently. And then the last phase is the illumination, the rubido, which is the, um, the alchemists call this the reddening of the dawn as the sun rises, the reddening of the sky, of, of a new dawn. And I think that's what a few people on the planet are moving into, this realization that a new dawn is coming and is possible. So it, alchemy is immensely important for understanding what we're going through and for um, not resisting the process, not fighting it, but going with it 
understanding that we are actually being transformed by the cosmos, if you like, because this is a cosmic process. It's not just a human process or a planetary process. It is um, coming to us from the cosmos, from the deep ground of our being, really, uh, and the deep ground of our soul. And many people in other centuries knew about this. In the 15th and 16th centuries, there were many alchemists who were well aware of this. And the main theme of alchemy is rescuing the spirit that's buried in matter or nature. It's um, honoring it and bringing it forth so that the feminine archetype, which was always connected with nature, is on an equal par. This is where the true equality comes in. Um, the feminine archetype as nature and matter is on an equal level as spirit and it's actually understood to be part of spirit. That is the true alchemical realization that was known by individuals in the past. And um, there's a marvelous place in Amsterdam where I was in October where a house has been uh, bought and filled with all the alchemical manuscripts and treasures from the past gathered into one place by one man who's called Joost Rittman and it's called the Rittman Institute and it's called uh, the Embassy of the Free Mind. Embassy of the Free Mind. It has all the wonderful alchemical manuscripts that he spent 70 years collecting. So this was known in Europe. It was very much part of the European culture but it was repressed by the Catholic Church, who um, made it a heresy, really, to dare to speak about these things, speak about the need to rescue spirit buried in nature. That was absolute heresy. And it's taken all this time, 400 years, to reach the point where we could talk about these things openly and where people could visit a place like this place in, in Amsterdam to really see the treasures that have been collected by this wonderful man. Um, so that is the alchemical process that we're in at the moment that's been going on for thousands of years but was particularly conscious in the European civilization of the um, 15th and 16th centuries and also in Persia because there's an alchemical stream that comes from Persia and from India and from China. So this was known in different countries but kept secret always because of persecution and oppression. But I think that's very exciting. I think it's really exciting that we should be in the middle of this process and becoming aware of our relationship with nature and rescuing nature from our own unconsciousness, really, and from the oppression that it suffered during the phase of the Negredo when we didn't know what we were doing. What advice would you give to a parent that has a daughter or maybe to a young woman that you know, wants to embrace and their motherly or feminine or feminine archetype uh, but still you know uh, have the same kind of uh, level of status and respect in society as the men do well i think we've still got a very long way to go because it's not the basic the historical sources of all this are not understood i've tried to explain them in my book and i would suggest anyone who can afford the book that they get it or if they ha can't afford it they can listen to the chapters of the book audio form on my website because they need to understand where this oppression of women came from and why it existed 
and why it's been so difficult for, to, for women to be able to have the right to earn their living, to um, become individuals in their own right, rather than just be seen as um, just as a wife or as a daughter or, or, uh, or as a mother. Mothers have not been given the respect that they should have had. And now all the emphasis been, has been put um, on the working woman rather than on the mother. And that needs to be rebalanced and recalibrated because women find it very difficult to do both. They can do both, but it takes a huge amount of energy to be both a mother and to have a job out in the world. It's easy if they can have a job from home, working from home, creating their own business or whatever it might be. But it's very difficult to go to a nine-to-five job and then come home to look after a child and give the child enough attention, um, which the child needs, particularly as it's from the age of about one until 15. It needs a lot of attention to help it develop language, first of all, because without the mother in the home, children don't develop language. They come to school unable to speak, in this country anyway. And... Secondly, they need to develop, they need the feminine from the mother in order, although it can come from the father if he's at home, empathic skills. They, they will get those empathic feminine skills from copying whichever parent has them in the home, which, whichever parent is showing them love and affection and attention and providing their food and talking to them. Talking is very, very important rather than sitting them in front of the television, actually engaging with the child developing the child's capacity for feeling and understanding and its connection with the natural world um, you know taking it out into nature and showing it things looking at the flowers looking at the trees looking at the animals all that should be part of parenting whether it's man or, or mother or father doing it but that is the feminine archetype will be about relationships Whereas the masculine archetype is more to do with achieving and discovering one's abilities and how one can express them in the world. But there needs to be a balance. So if people want to read your books and uh, find out more about you, where can they get those books and, and, and what's your website? Well, they can go to my website, which is www.annbearing.com and they can also get um, my books on Amazon, all of them. Uh, well, not all of them, but certainly the myth of the goddess and the um, dream of the cosmos are available from Amazon. And uh, there's one also called the divine feminine, and there's an, um, there's one called soul power. But anyway, they're all on my website, and people can uh, find out from Amazon where they are to order them from Amazon. Great! It, it was very nice uh, talking to you. Well, lovely talking to you and lovely to be asked too because nothing people like more to be asked to speak <laughs> and to give their ideas out into the world. And they need people like you to be the intermediaries, uh, the kind intermediaries who can facilitate this kind of meeting. So thank you very much, Alex. Have a look at Anne's work over at annebaring.com. Now it's time for the second episode of The Great Mindfuck with Alexandro, which is basically myself and shaman healer Andrew speaking about various topics that we consider to be mindfucks. This one is about self.
Uh, hi, Alex. How are you doing? It's been a while. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you five questions, actually, or more. Uh, these are my favorite questions from a TV show that I used to really like. It's, uh, it was called Babylon 5. And uh, these questions are uh, asked by a very uh, most ancient entity in the universe, allegedly. And the, f the questions are as follows. Uh, who are you? What do you want? Where do you come from? Where are you going? Who do you serve? And who do you trust? It's a list of questions. Uh, so let's start with the first one. I'm going to ask you, like, you know, innocently and directly. Who are you? I don't know. Well, at, at least you're honest. <laughs> uh, or at least you can fake honesty to such a brilliant degree that it sounds believable. Hmm, I guess we never know. Uh, but I've been teaching workshops and seminars, and uh, I've been hearing people uh, asking those questions and telling me stuff like, I want to find myself, or I'm searching for myself, or I want to be true to myself, or uh, I don't want to lie to myself, uh, or I feel like I'm losing myself. Uh, and what the fuck is this self that everyone's talking about? What is this thing? Do you have an answer for that? What is this elusive, mysterious self that everyone's talking about? Everyone wants to find it. Nobody wants to lose it. Uh, nobody wants to lie to it. And yet, we have no fucking idea what this self even is. So what is this mindfuck that people refer to as self? I think uh, it's uh, people might, might be feeling uh, confused and lost and if they find out about this self they, it's like an anchor I guess uh, otherwise they're just drifting through the cosmos and what is this anchor? what is this self? well uh, I don't think it's possible to find that out uh, maybe partially but uh, you don't really know I, I, don't think you, I don't think you'd know until you die and maybe not even then not even then uh, the self is basically a story. The self is a story that is continuously being written and rewritten. There is no fixed self that we can actually find and then say, ah, okay, found it, got it, now I know. No such thing. So if you're looking for yourself, you might as well spend your time uh, with more lucrative endeavors uh, because it's not going to get you anywhere. Stop looking for yourself. Uh, you won't find it. The self is a story. The self is a narrative, just like everything else. The, you, you grow up, you're being born, you grow up, and you're being told things about yourself, that you are like this and you are like that. And you accumulate all sorts of uh, storylines that the self is supposed to be composed of uh, those things and uh, certain values and of certain ways to conduct yourself, your persona, I mean, and, uh, and you have a heritage, which I guess we're going to cover one day in the future. And you have like a nationality and you have like a gender and you have all these things. And they all are supposed to compose uh, the thing, this mysterious thing called selves. But these are just stories that you're being told. You're being basically mindfucked with those stories since you're born. And then when you're smart enough to get created and you learn to lie yourself because we all start by being lied to, of course, and, uh, you know, uh, monkey sees, monkey does, so we start to lie, to learn how to lie uh, on our own, and we become, the better we become, the better liars we become, the more 
lines we can add to the story, to the narrative of the self. And, uh, and the self is a story, is a story being continuously written and rewritten. So there is no fixed, stable self. It's a collection of narratives. It's, it's a geometry of lines and dots and crossing storylines. And, and some stories are shitty and some stories are extremely well written. And some people actually are amazing at, at, at writing and rewriting their persona or their projection of what they call self. But it is a story and it's subject to writing and rewriting. So it's just a narrative. So the self is, is a matter of storytelling. It starts with us being told stories about who we are. And when we old enough to make up shit on our own, we start adding lines to the story. So the, sto the self is a story always in motion, always in the process of being written and rewritten. And we can't ever really find it. It's just a story. It's not who we are. Uh, and we can never find it because by the time we find it, the story has already changed. So it's a sort of like tail chasing uh, endeavor, finding the self. So my advice is just, you know, give up trying to find the self and focus on something uh, that's more valuable to you. But the self is just a massive mindfuck. It's just a story, nothing more, a narrative, a collection of narratives. You know what? Let me take it even further. In uh, the last uh, uh, meeting we had, we talked about uh, religion. The self is basically a sort of religion. It's something we believe in. It's what we believe ourselves to be. It's the church that we go to when we are uh, talking about ourselves. We're talking about our religion. Check out andro at hermeticvision.com If you really like this podcast, I mean, if you really, really like it and you simply cannot get enough, you can always listen to other stuff I make. Deleted segments, episodes, special rants or thoughts, etc, etc. All this additional material can be listened to over at patreon.com forward slash natural born alchemist you can find a link in the program notes of this episode for whatever amount you want you can get access to all this additional material as well as get access to these episodes before anyone else now i don't know how many podcasts you are listening to but i bet not many of them are devoid of adverts I'm not going to peddle uh, Squarespace, Blue Apron, Fleshlights or um, Legal Zoom or, uh, I don't know, Audible. <laughs> uh, no. Fuck all those products because you can't buy me. If I am going to sell a product, that product is going to be myself so you'll never experience ads on this podcast only ads that promote the podcast itself let's keep it meta don't you think now for some beautiful music i want to play the song lab sent by kada and mike Patton from the album romances this album is a true unknown gem and i advise everyone to get it 
I had the great chance to see them live once, uh, performing the whole thing from beginning to end. I still class this as one of my top 10 concert experiences ever. So if you like what you hear, please check them out and a lot of other bands over at ipcac.com. That's I-P-E-C-A-C dot com. Next week's episode is not about you. Freedom is in the mind.